This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker and all evening I'm joined by Ash Sarkar. Ash, how are you doing? I'm good, Michael. How are you? I am well, although lots of really important and often difficult stories to get through this evening. So let's get straight on with it. Coming up later tonight, misinformation is swirling around the conflict in Israel-Palestine, sometimes boosted by our mainstream media. Suella Braverman has announced that she's looking into whether merely waving a Palestinian flag is an offence. And former human rights lawyer Keir Starmer backs the Israeli blockade of Gaza. Straight into our first story. Israel's siege of the Gaza Strip has now entered its third day and bombs continue to fall on the blockaded territory. According to Gaza's health ministry, at least 1,100 Palestinians, including 326 children, have been killed since Saturday and the total number of people injured stands at over 5,000. Officials in Gaza are also warning that the Gazan population faces a, quote, humanitarian catastrophe with its only power plant having entirely run out of fuel. In a statement, Gaza's authorities said this. This threatens to plunge the strip into complete darkness and make it impossible to continue providing all basic life services, all of which depend on electricity. And it will not be possible to operate them partially with generators in light of the prevention of fuel supplies from Rafa Gate. And Rafa Gate was the only entry point to Gaza not controlled by Israel, but the passage into Egypt has been repeatedly bombed. And the lack of electricity means that providing medical treatment to the nearly 5,200 Palestinians now injured by the bombardment will be almost impossible. This doctor in Gaza described the situation to Sky News. The generators have been on all day, so we're now on to diesel supply, and we know that that's going to eventually run out because the Israelis announced total siege and and no diesel is going to come in for the generators that keep the hospital. I think at any minute they're going to start rationing the electricity supply and just trying to save as much for the operating rooms and the intensive care areas. We're already beyond the capacity of the system to, to, to cope. Already I have 50 patients waiting to go to the operating room that I cannot get to the operating rooms because the, the priority is for more critically ill patients. And as they, as they, these surgeries are delayed, these injuries run the risk of becoming infected and these uh, wounds become more difficult to reconstruct and, and the disability that is, is left behind much worse. What happens when the diesel runs out? How long do you think you can keep the hospital running for? Once the diesel runs out, you can't uh, run the... the um, you can't run the, the anesthetic machines in the operating rooms and you can't run the lights and, and you just have to stop. So far, over a thousand Palestinians have died in the assault. This drone footage shows the scale of the damage caused by Israel's bombing of densely populated Gaza. At least two hospitals, as well as two centres run by the Palestinian Red Crescent, have been hit. Apartment buildings, schools, mosques and the University of Gaza have all been struck. Little warning is given before missile strikes and, in any case, There are few places for residents to seek shelter. According to authorities, entire families have been killed in their homes and 200,000 Palestinians have been made homeless. This eyewitness footage released by Channel 4 News gives an insight into conditions on the ground. This little boy was pulled out alive, his face blackened. His rescuer rushes to his mother. 
But before she can embrace her boy, she passes out in a shock. Anika becomes an ambulance. This woman is driving off before the boot can be shot. We've been told to get out, but where do we go? And how do we get there? There are more than two million people living here. Almost half are children. Families are rushing, trying to make plans. Every second matters. Gaza is under a complete siege. No water, no food, no electricity, and no escape. It's too hard. Some almost give up. But you can't stand still for long. Please, my family, they're just kids. We are not strangers to war, but how it feels this time. It's hard to find the walls. It feels like the world is collapsing. And it's just horrific to imagine being in that situation. You're in, you know, an open-air prison which is being bombed, essentially. Where do you hide? Where do you go? Got bombs landing everywhere. Yes, the Israelis say they give a certain amount of, of warning. Obviously, that's not enough because there have already been more than a thousand people who have been killed. But even then, you know, your block of flats is about to be bombed. Please leave within 10, 10 minutes, right? Can you imagine getting that message? And, it, and it's not as if, oh, yeah, you can go and stay at your, your nan's or your mum's because it's safe over there. No, they'll also be living in the open-air prison, which is being bombed, right? This is collective punishment and it's a war crime and it's horrific. And as we're going to talk about on, on tonight's show, it's being cheer-led by so many people in our media and political class. And we were given another view of the bombardment in this CNN interview with an American pediatrician in Gaza. You were there on a routine mission, a very important mission to, to, to take care of children. Were you prepared at all for this? Well, uh, whenever you go to Gaza, you always know that there's, there's danger of some violence while you're there, but no, I wasn't. Well, sorry, I'm prepared for this. Let us know if you need sure. to go into some sort of a bomb shelter or whatever, because I can hear those explosions going off right near you. There are no bomb shelters here. Is there any safe area that you can go to? Yeah, um, actually I have a sister-in-law who's Palestinian. She tells me to stay away from the windows. So I'm away from the window, stay by corners of walls that are more fortified and um, open your mouth so your, your, um, your eardrums don't break if there's a lot of pressure, so. I'm following her advice and I'm in a safe part of the room. We shouldn't compare two terrible situations or grief, right? The, the events that happened to Israeli civilians over the past week from Saturday onwards were, were absolutely horrific. But the broader situation in Israel, what we often hear is, you know, someone saying, oh, I spoke to my, Keir Starmer was actually saying this morning, you know, he, he, he spoke to a politician in Israel and when they were talking, there was an air raid siren and she had to take her work into, you know, the shelter. Right, and you're saying this. This is why this has to stop. This is why Israel should not stop before they have completely destroyed Gaza. Now you've got there a CNN host assuming the situation is the same thing for the Palestinians, right? So when I speak to the Israelis, when these sirens go off, they go to their um, th their shelters. Presumably, you can now do the same. 
no, actually, we don't have shelters, right? So it's it, it's a very very different situation. Now I I think you know last Saturday was an, was an exception. You had lots of Israelis who were in incredibly vulnerable situation. Lots of them perished, but the situation in Gaza is one really of, of, of constant danger, and that is not the case in in Israel. Now the bombing is only likely to worsen. President Joe Biden has thrown his support behind Israel's military. We stand with Israel. We stand with Israel. We will make sure Israel has what it needs to take care of its citizens, defend itself, and respond to this attack. There's no justification for terrorism. There's no excuse. Hamas does not stand for the Palestinian people's right to dignity and self-determination. Its stated purpose is the annihilation of the state of Israel and the murder of Jewish people. They use Palestinian civilians as human shields. Hamas offers nothing but terror and bloodshed with no regard to who pays the price. The loss of innocent life is heartbreaking. Like every nation in the world, Israel has the right to respond, indeed has a duty to respond to these vicious attacks. I just got off the phone with a third call with Prime Minister Netanyahu. And I told him, the United States experience with Israel experiencing our response to be swift, decisive, and overwhelming. There is a government right now, the Israeli government, which is saying these people are human animals. You've got a far-right prime minister, and the language coming out from them is, 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 is frankly genocidal. They're saying they're cutting off the water, they're cutting off the power, uh, no food can go in or out. And then you've got a president who's not calling up and saying, you know, I, I, I have solidarity with you. Your people have, have, have suffered over the past week. These, these attacks are awful, but please show restraint. You know, leadership is about showing restraint and recognizing that your actions have consequences and you can't just act out of vengeance. Instead, you've got Joe Biden calling up Netanyahu and saying, yeah, let's make these actions as decisive and overwhelming as possible. Like, how irresponsible can you get, right? It's, it's, you, you cannot egg someone on in that situation. We've just shown you the scenes from Gaza. You've got people who, who can't escape. Uh, their tower blocks are being bombed. They're being told to leave within 10 minutes. They've got nowhere to go, right? Completely terrifying situation. And I, 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 I don't really see, you know, maybe in like the pages of Haaretz, so sort of the, the liberal Israeli newspaper, you will have some sort of, uh, some people saying, no, let, let's show some restraint. Let's recognize that um, one of the roots of, of, of the attacks on Saturday was the oppression of Palestinians. We, we don't want to jump head over heels into intensifying it. But as far as I can tell, the overwhelming sense in Israel is let's go get them as hard as we possibly can. You know, a bit like America after 9-11. Now, what should foreign governments be doing in that situation? They should be saying, look, calm down, show restraint. You still have to follow international law. Instead, Go get him. Essentially, Joe Biden seems to be, you know, if we're to believe what he's, he's, he's telling that press conference there, he's just calling up Bibi Netanyahu saying, go for it. You know, make it as overwhelming as possible. And a ground invasion of Gaza now appears likely. One Israeli security source has told Reuters a ground offensive is, quote, not preventable because of the heavy price that we paid. Not preventable because of the heavy price we paid. Again, that seems to be about revenge. It's not He's not saying it's not preventable because the things we need to do require a ground invasion. You know, the, the consequences we need to achieve require a ground invasion. Since we, what happened to us was so bad, we're going to have to send our troops in. NGOs providing aid to Gaza have been affected by the ongoing attack as well. And with the UN's Agency for Palestinian Refugees reporting this, 
Nine of our UN staffers have been killed in airstrikes in Gaza since Saturday. The protection of civilians is paramount, including in times of conflict. They should be protected in accordance with the laws of war. Now, I would guess that the people who are working for the UN in Gaza are some of the most, I don't want to use, I mean, privilege is a ridiculous word to use in this context, but the people who I would expect to have the most access to safe spaces to spend time the best access to information from the Israeli military so that they can avoid airstrikes and the like. And so if you've got nine UN workers being killed in airstrikes, what's it going to be like for the rest of, of Palestinians, for, for, for the other two million Gazans? Right? This, is, this to me is, you know, that must just be the tip of the iceberg and that's completely terrifying. And the war also appears to be spreading to the wider region. Israel has now shelled targets in Lebanon after Hezbollah claimed responsibility for two missiles fired across the border into Israel. Um, now Israel's red color air warning system has reported hostile aircraft crossing into northern Israel from Lebanon. Some reports from Israeli media have referred to gliders and with citizens in the north of the country urged to take shelter. Ash, the scenes that we are witnessing in Gaza, as I say, I just I, I can't imagine anything more terrifying, especially because these people can't escape. I think what we're witnessing is almost certainly the build-up to ethnic cleansing. And I'm not saying that in an alarmist way. I'm saying that if what you do is you indiscriminately bomb a densely populated area, you tell people to leave. Now, of course, Palestinians can't leave into Israel. Uh, they're being urged to leave via the Rafa crossing into Egypt, which is also being persistently bombed. There's been some indication that the US may aid with the movement of people through the Rafa border. That is ethnic cleansing because it's people being displaced from their homes, from their homeland, at effectively the barrel of a gun. And Israel does not recognize the right of return for Palestinian refugees. And I think that that's sort of the, the best case scenario. And of course, if you end up with huge displacements of people because you've made vast areas of the Gaza Strip, not that the Gaza Strip is itself vast, but because you've made a huge amount of it uninhabitable, that is also a a form of ethnic cleansing. I think that that's sort of the best case scenario of what we're looking at. The worst case scenario is what we see being expressed through the most bloodthirsty language of Israeli officials talking about dealing with human animals. That is the language of genocide. And what is so deeply worrying at this point is that breaches of the Geneva Convention, war crimes are being announced in advance by the Israeli government. Benjamin Netanyahu is tweeting videos of war crimes, bombs flattening residential blocks. And not only is there nary a peep from much of the international community, in particular Western nations, He's being given the explicit backing of the United States and the United Kingdom's governments. That is utterly morally abhorrent, completely morally abhorrent. And it makes me feel ashamed as a British citizen 
that our government and our opposition are united in their unequivocal backing for war crimes. Um, the only leading politician that I can really see in the UK at all calling for de-escalation is Humza Yousaf, the First Minister of Scotland. And that's because, as he's spoken about previously, I suspect due in no small part to the fact that his in-laws are currently trapped in Gaza. I mean, the scenes are completely devastating, Michael, and it's disturbing that there appears to be a consensus amongst the British media that this has somehow been invited by the Palestinians themselves, that the war crimes that had been carried out by Hamas, and I do think that they are war crimes, then mean that it is morally and legally legitimate to commit war crimes in return. That is not how international law works, and that's certainly not how morality works. Those children who are in Gaza's hospitals, who are critically injured, many of them, they have had no part in the actions of Hamas. And yet it is their lives that are at risk from first bombardment and then the impact of fuel, of water, of food and aid being cut off. I mean, it, it really is um, just a, a, a complete abdication of any sense of morality on the part of the uh, Israeli state. Uh, the Israeli state often likes to boast that the IDF is the most moral army in the world, that its technology is the best, its missiles are most precise. In that case, we can only take them at their word and assume that every act of savage and indiscriminate attack on civilian population and civilian infrastructure is a direct representation of the Israeli state itself. This isn't an out-of-control army. This is a very much in-control army, which has been given the blessing of Western governments. I'm just looking at an update on the Rafah crossing. I mean, I, I think at the moment Egypt is still saying that, that they don't want a mass exodus of people from Gaza into, into Egypt. They're saying that would displace e Egyptians or whatever. I mean, it seems like a lack of solidarity. Um, but at the same time, I mean, if you are a Palestinian in Gaza, you've got this sort of awful decision to make because if you leave Gaza, are they going to let you back? You know, like, you know, the Israelis might say, okay, leave Gaza, we'll clear out Hamas, and then once Hamas are cleared out, you can come back. Now, that obviously makes no sense, because if you were Hamas, you'd, you'd, you'd go and come back as well, some of you, right? It doesn't, doesn't make any sense. But I just wouldn't trust Israel to hold that side of the bargain, right? They want that land. They've, uh, they want all of Palestine, right? So it, 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 I wouldn't have no faith as a Palestinian in Gaza that if I leave while Israel does their carpet bombing, I'm ever going to be let back into my home. So, I mean, just a, a completely horrific situation that people are being put in. Let's go to our next story. The death toll in Israel from Hamas's surprise attack has now exceeded 1,200 people. And there's no question that the brutality of the assault, it was brutal. Old people and children amongst the many killed. Now, those victims include more than 100 people whose bodies have been discovered in the Bieri kibbutz near Gaza's border and in the nearby Kafar Aza kibbutz. Reports are emerging of whole families killed. The established facts of the attack are horrific. It's awful. The scenes look horrific. You know, I, you can't imagine the trauma that that would have, have meant and whole families died, right? This is terrible. However, for some in the media, it's not terrible enough. The established facts aren't horrific enough. This was the front page of the Daily Express this morning. Horror at pure evil beheading 
of babies. This was the front page of the Times. Hamas cut the throats of babies in massacre. Now, that claim about beheading was also repeated on the front pages of the Independent and the Mail, and the Metro also carried it, saying that 40 babies were murdered. Now, these are incredibly shocking and incredibly disturbing headlines, and they're purported to describe what's emerging at the Kafar Azar kibbutz. The problem is, there's scant evidence it actually happened. Now, let's look at how the Telegraph reported this story. They said this, One of the soldiers involved in the operation, David Ben-Zion, deputy commander of Unit 17, said children had been beheaded. They chopped the heads off women and children, he told local news channel I-24. The Telegraph could not verify the claim. Now, if you can't verify a claim, it seems at best risky to publish it in your newspaper. And it seems downright irresponsible to blazon it across your front page. We couldn't verify this, but this is still the most important news of the day. It's going to be our front page story. Now, of course, we need to be careful here. Just because the claims haven't been verified doesn't mean, or doesn't necessarily mean, that those atrocities didn't happen at Kafar Azar. And even if they didn't, it seems clear that some of Hamas's victims were babies and children. What has happened is horrific. But at a time of war, with tensions rising between communities in many parts of the world, responsible reporting is vital. And this all seems pretty irresponsible. Now, the source of the claim was this report from Israeli news channel I-24. Truly the scene of a massacre, as many of these people were just inside their homes, families. Uh, one of the commanders here said said at least 40 babies were killed. Some of them, them their, their heads cut off. He said he's never seen acts of brutality like this. The journalist there is reporting what one IDF soldier told her. So it's hardly, hardly a, a neutral witness. Um, you know, it's one side in, in a war, essentially, right? And, and that report went viral. But after that claim emerged, Turkish-based Anadolu agency asked the IDF to confirm it. And the IDF couldn't. A military spokesperson said that despite seeing the claim on the news, they had no details or confirmation of it. But by then it was too late, as people with large followers spread the unverified claim. Rob Burley, editor at Sky News, tweeted this, reports of 40 babies, some beheaded, found at a kibbutz. This isn't freedom fighting, it's depraved violence perpetrated by sick men. That post was then retweeted by our security minister, so a government minister, Tom Tugendhat. Meanwhile, broadcaster and spectator chairman Andrew Neal posted this, unconfirmed reports that Hamas has slaughtered 40 babies, beheading some, increasingly and sadly look like being true. Major news outlets now carrying the reports. The English language does not contain the vocabulary for an adequate response to this. Now, this tweet is interesting because Neil is using the fact that outlets are publishing the unverified claim to make it seem like the claim is verified. Well, if they're publishing it, it must be true. Now, that's not how verification works, but it is how the race for attention works. Now, to their credit, one news outlet, Sky News, has called it out on air. Many of the newspapers, um, the Metro, the Times, the Telegraph, leading on these reports from Kafar Azar. We saw our correspondent Stuart Ramsey's report from there. Um, It seems to have come from one Israeli journalist who said that she was told by soldiers there that 40 babies had died and some of them had been beheaded. Truly horrifying. Um, We have not seen the evidence of that. We have asked uh, the Israeli Defence Forces, the IDF, three times to confirm those numbers. They have not yet. doesn't mean it didn't happen, but we saw a body bag with one child in it today when we were at Kafazar with this facility by the Israeli army. 
This morning, Sky's international affairs editor, Dominic Waghorn, added some more information on this story. So he tweeted this. The story about babies being beheaded at Kfar Azar is based on one live report by one Israeli reporter and has not been corroborated by officials. But it has been reported as fact around the world by experienced journalists who should know better. Waghorn followed that up by saying the IDF have also told Sky News that they cannot confirm that 40 babies were beheaded. And this afternoon, Business Insider broke another development on this story. They asked an IDF spokesperson whether they would investigate the claims. Um, Major Nir Dinar told them this, we're not going to investigate the condition of bodies. And even if we did, we won't comment publicly about the condition of our civilians' bodies. And babies, the war crimes, the war crimes that Hamas committed are obvious to the world and are seen in the world. And I don't need to provide any proof of that. And I'm not going to. It's disrespectful for the dead. Let your readers know that a soldier who handled the bodies, that was his claim. I don't have any evidence and I'm not looking for one. Now that seems odd to me to not look for evidence because, you know, the Israelis are trying to drum up support for their action against the people of Gaza, against Hamas, I'll say about against Hamas, but clearly, you know, it's also affecting lots of people in Gaza who aren't part of Hamas, right? The Israelis are looking for support for their, you know, the invasion they seem to be planning and the bombing they're currently doing, the siege they're currently enforcing. So I think if they thought this was true, they would actually have quite a lot of interest in verifying it. The fact that the spokesperson is saying, oh, we have no interest in verifying it, that, I mean, that suggests to me that they they don't think this story is true, but they're, they're happy for it to circulate. They don't really have any interest in saying it's not true, but they're also not going to say it is true. And so what has happened? We've had a statement from one live reporter who is quoting one soldier who it seems as if you know no one else has spoken to, right? And now that has led loads and loads of newspapers across the world. And as I say, we're in a very tense situation right now. That's not good. Um, Sky's Rob Burley has kind of rolled back um, on his original tweet. So he has tweeted this. We now know that reports of babies' children killed at Kavar Azar confirmed. Methods of murder remain unclear. So they may have beheaded babies or may have shot babies. If you're focusing on that distinction and bizarre point scoring around it, ask yourself why. Now, I have a problem with that tweet because this isn't about point scoring, right? No one is saying, oh, they didn't behead the baby, so it's completely fine. Right? Obviously, killing kids is wrong, whoever does it, wherever you do it. But given there is a far-right government in Israel looking for any excuse to commit war crimes against 2 million people in Gaza, right? accurate reporting is pretty important. And this isn't the only situation where the mainstream media have got ahead of the facts. Take a look at this correction from the LA Times. Now, if I direct your attention to the right-hand side, it says this. An earlier version of this column mentioned rape in the attacks. But such reports have not been substantiated. Now, corrections like that, of course, haven't prevented the idea of Hamas as mass rapists from becoming received wisdom on Twitter. And again, none of this is to excuse what Hamas have done, and they have very clearly carried out war crimes and atrocities. But when the media are reporting on things such as this, you know, when they publish horrific and highly emotive stories without checking the facts, the consequences can be severe. Now, the most famous example of this also concerns the murder of babies, or the, the, the purported murder of babies, only this time in Iraq. Now, following Iraq's invasion of Kuwait in 1990, a young Kuwaiti woman, identified only by her first name, Naira, testified to the US Congress. She told them that Iraqi soldiers had stormed a Kuwaiti hospital, torn babies out of incubators, and left them to die on the floor. That testimony was broadcast across America, intensifying the appetite for an intervention. President George H. Bush even repeated it in speeches. America went to war. But after that war was over, the claim turned out to have been completely fabricated. The young woman was later revealed to be the daughter of Kuwait's ambassador to the US at 
the time. Now, why are we telling this? It's very important. The reason we are telling you this about this very irresponsible reporting is not to say all of the atrocities which are said to have been committed by Hamas are made up, right? We're absolutely not saying don't believe anything you read because it might all be lies. It seems as if, you know, there are lots of responsible reporters who are reporting on what has happened and atrocities have been carried out. But if you've got people who are with scant evidence putting on their front pages that, you know, I can't imagine any anything more horrific than beheading babies. You know, you, you can't imagine a worse crime than beheading babies. You know, it's 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 like it's it's a vision from someone's worst nightmare. And to be putting that on the front of a newspaper without verification, what are these people trying to do? Right? What emotions are they trying to um, provoke in their readers? Are they trying to provoke compassion for Israeli victims of Hamas? Or are they trying to provoke disgust and anger? Are they trying to say, you readers, look at these Palestinians, look at these animals, really, right? That's the language we're hearing from the Israeli government. And I think when people read about babies being beheaded, that's also what they think about, right? So if you are publishing what seems to be fake news at a time when there is a, 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 a nuclear power which looks pretty willing to commit something akin to genocide, and you are making up stuff about the people that are at the sharp end of that, I think that's pretty unforgivable. Um, Ash, I want your, your thoughts on this. I think that a good rule of thumb is look at where media standards don't seem to apply, because that's where power really lies. The likes of Rob Burley, if I were to have said the IDF has beheaded children in Gaza or the West Bank, oh, no, wait, it actually turns out that these children were killed in a bombing or killed with gunfire. They wouldn't accept that this distinction is just bizarre, pointless point scoring, that all that matters is that there are dead children. Why? Because they know full well that there is something particularly visceral, something particularly brutal, something particularly repulsive about the idea of children and infants being beheaded. So if you wouldn't accept that you would waive the standard of media accuracy when it comes to describing the actions of the IDF or Israelis, why is it suddenly acceptable to waive that standard of accuracy when it comes to talking about Hamas? Well, it's because at the moment there is a massive consent manufacturing exercise to get people to go along with what are obvious war crimes being committed by the IDF in retaliatory violence for the atrocities carried out by Hamas. That's what's going on. And were journalists to question their role in that, either because they are not particularly good at their job and they're unable to distinguish between a corroborated and confirmed story and an unverified one, or because their politics, their cultural sense of affiliation, their ideological attachments lead them to identify with the more westernized party in this conflict. If they were to really look at themselves, it would undermine their 
entire right to claim to be the sort of arbiters of respectable opinion and the gatekeepers of the information flow in our public discourse. So that's why I think that these individuals get so defensive when called upon to account for their own inaccuracies, because if they were to explain it, they would explain themselves out of a job. I mean, it really is self-reinforcing, right? Because people respond, you know, they respond to their own prejudices. They also respond to to costs and benefits, right? So if you were an, an editor at one of these newspapers that ran with this, and as you say, Ash, if you, were, if you were publishing this about IDF soldiers beheading Palestinian babies, you would know that if you put that on your front page and you get it wrong, you were in trouble, right? You, you were going to be getting called a conspiracy rag, right? You were, you were going to face consequences. If you say that, about the Palestinians, you aren't going to face consequences. And then obviously, you know, the Times, some, they get some information that, oh, the, the Metro are running with it, so we need to run with it. So you get this whole system whereby you almost have this sort of interlocking interest where the media are like, well, if I can get away with it, you can get away with it. And let's none of us call it out because then we'll all have to apologize. And it, it, it's like a, it snowballs. And I think it's really, really dangerous, especially in a moment like this, as I keep saying, when we have a nuclear um, armed power talking essentially about committing genocide, right? To, to to just be making up stuff on your front pages. Well, not making, reporting stuff which you cannot corroborate on your front pages. I'm not saying any of these people made it up. Um, so some media outlets are being fast and loose with the facts and abandoning any pretense of objectivity. Yet it's outlets sticking to reporting standards who are coming under scrutiny. The BBC in particular is being put under immense pressure to refer to Hamas as terrorists, not militants, as is the norm in their style guide. The Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, has blasted the BBC for not calling Hamas terrorists, and the Culture Secretary, Lucy Fraser, has backed him up too. Former employers of the Beeb have also weighed in. John Sapel was the BBC's North America editor before leaving to host the News Agents podcast. He wrote this, Dear friends and former colleagues at BBC News, if this doesn't describe an act of pure terror by terrorists, what does? The guidelines that I followed for years are no longer fit for purpose and sadly have the effect of sanitising. Now, interestingly... When he's making this attack at his former colleagues, he is sharing the unsubstantiated claim that Andrew Neil has tweeted about the beheaded babies. Right, so John Sopel is saying, your journalistic standards aren't good enough, while he is retweeting to his massive following an unverified claim. So make of that what you will. A current BBC journalist, though, someone who still works for the corporation, has given a thoughtful and I think brave riposte. John Simpson wrote this on Twitter. British politicians know perfectly well why the BBC avoids the word terrorist. And over the years, plenty of them have privately agreed with it. Calling someone a terrorist means you're taking sides and ceasing to treat the situation with due impartiality. The BBC's job is to place the facts before its audience and let them decide what they think honestly and without ranting. That's why in Britain and throughout the world, nearly half a billion people watch, listen to and read us. There's always someone who would like us to rant. Sorry, it's not what we do. Ash, this seems quite brave from, from the BBC. And I, you know, I, I do think that there is a push to make this like the situation which happened after 9-11. Now, obviously, the people saying this is Israel's 9-11. Now, that's not a completely ridiculous thing to say, right? You know, 1,200 people have died, proportionate to their population. That's more people than died in 9-11. What happened after 9-11? You had this awful, with us or against us, sort of policing of language. If you suggested that responding by invading a country in the Middle East was a bad idea, you were called a traitor. In the, I mean, it was worse in the United States than it was in the UK, I think. And people seem to be saying, oh, that was great. Let's repeat that. Let's do that again. Right, we did that for 9/11, so let's do it for this attack. And who cares about the damage? Who cares if it, you know, destroys another civilian population? Um, what do you make of this pressure that's being put on the BBC specifically? What the 
pressure on the BBC represents is an attempt to make the official media line indistinguishable from how Israel and its allies narrate the nature of the crisis that's unfolding. And people have differences of opinion. Uh, Many of our audience will be instinctively and intuitively more sympathetic with the plight of Palestinians having suffered under illegal occupation for decades. However, it's it's understandable that people will will lodge that demand that they would want to have more sympathetic coverage uh you know for the israelis but the job of media isn't to accept one state's account of what's going on uncritically um it's the job of media to reveal the truth, to talk about events, to shed light on what's going on in spaces where it would ordinarily be closed. And if you decide to say, okay, well, we we will call Hamas terrorists, because it's true they're designated a terrorist organization in the UK, but we're going to call Hamas terrorists. What you're doing is you're very much taking the side of Israel in an armed conflict. Palestine doesn't have an army. Palestine doesn't have missiles and tanks which are provided by Western arms companies, right? Palestine doesn't have these things. The nature of any armed resistance is that it will be designated terrorism by Israel and states which are allied to the Israeli state. So to accept that and report that uncritically in reporting, the BBC would be in major breach of its impartiality. Let's go to our next story. The attempt to delegitimize expressions of Palestinian solidarity has reached new heights. The Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, is now saying that the mere waving of a Palestinian flag could constitute a criminal offence. She's written to the police saying this. It is not just explicit pro-Hamas symbols and chants that are cause for concern. I would encourage police to consider whether chants such as from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free should be understood as an expression of a violent desire to see Israel erased from the world and whether its use in certain contexts may amount to a racially aggravated Section 5 public order offence. I would encourage police to give similar considerations to the presence of symbols such as swastikas at anti-Israel demonstrations. Context is crucial. Behaviours that are legitimate in some circumstances, for example, the waving of a Palestinian flag, may not be legitimate, such as when intended to glorify acts of terrorism. Nor is it acceptable to drive through Jewish neighbourhoods or single out Jewish members of the public to aggressively chant or wave pro-Palestinian symbols at. Where harassment is identified, I would encourage the police to take swift and appropriate enforcement action. Now, this is a really bizarre letter because lots of things are being conflated. Right. Of course, driving through specifically Jewish neighborhoods or singling out Jewish members of the public is completely beyond the pale. Right. Even just waving a Palestinian flag at a Jewish member of the public, I think, is 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 beyond the pale. Right. If if you're 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 picking them out because they're Jewish. Right. Also, obviously, having a swastika at any demonstration is despicable. I I, I don't even know why that is in that that list. Right. I can't though for the life of me understand how the waving of a Palestine flag could be interpreted as endorsing terrorism. Now, you could be waving a Palestine flag while endorsing terrorism. Right? You, you could be chanting your support for Hamas while waving the Palestinian flag. But then the chant would be the offence. 
the flag wouldn't be an aggregating factor. It's not like you go in front of a judge and you say, well, um, we were very worried because you were chanting your support for, for Hamas and to make it worse, you were waving a Palestine flag. And yeah, as, as I've said, if you go and wave a Palestine flag specifically outside a Jewish restaurant or in front of a Jewish person, yeah, that's problematic. But that's because you've, well, I mean, it's not more than problematic, it's wrong. But that's because you're targeting a Jewish person. It's not because of the flag. The flag doesn't make it the problem. So, so this idea that waving the flag could be an endorsement of terrorism. How, how can waving a flag be an endorsement of terrorism unless you are in some other way endorsing terrorism? And if you are in some other way endorsing terrorism, then the flag is completely irrelevant. Ash, what do you make of this? This idea that a Palestine flag can be an aggravating factor when it comes to expressing your political opinions on the street. What this is about, plain and simple, is the attempt to criminalise and make it more difficult and inherently suspicious to express solidarity with the people of Palestine. I mean, this isn't the Conservative Party's first rodeo. They want to make it more and more difficult to support the boycott divestment and sanctions movement. We've seen the move to implement the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which has, I think, an unduly broad, sweeping definition of anti-Semitism, which I think unfairly curtails legitimate expression uh, of criticism of Israel. Like This is part of an entire body of measures being pursued by the Conservative Party. It is not supportive of Hamas to wave a Palestinian flag. A Palestinian flag is a symbol of the people of Palestine. Not all of the people of Palestine are Hamas. Not all the people of Hamas are interchangeable with the people of Palestine. This is basic primary school level logic. But by casting suspicion and saying, okay, we're going to conflate Palestine with Hamas, it it curtails the ability to exercise your political right to protest or express solidarity. Similarly, with the singling out of the slogan from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. This is something which is being, I think, misrepresented as a call for the elimination of Israel as a state or Jewish people from the land of historic Palestine, whereas at Palestine, in terms of you know a rapidly enclosed West Bank and Gaza, is between the river and the sea. That is Palestine. To talk about Palestine will be free. It is just as consistent with advocating a two-state solution and 1967 borders as it is being supportive of a one-state solution. What this is is about cracking down on lawful, legitimate, and peaceful expression. And because this is happening within a context where people are quite rightly so horrified by the atrocities committed over the weekend by Hamas, that it it creates an acceptable political cover to do so. You know, again, there's so many similarities to what happened immediately following 9-11, there was a very rigidly enforced notion of what was acceptable and the law followed through. Followed through. It wasn't just about social norms. We're going to go straight on to our next story. Israel's far-right government has shut off electricity, fuel, food and water to 2 million people in Gaza. Israeli ministers talk about Palestinians as human animals. So it's paramount for world leaders to pressure them to conform to international law. But Keir Starmer, former human rights lawyer, 
hasn't got the memo. He was interviewed by Nick Robinson on Radio 4. You've been clear that you think Israel has the right to defend herself. Would you, however, as some have, be urging restraint? Well, firstly, let me say these are appalling and shocking acts that we've seen in recent days. Cold-blooded murder of men, women, even children. Um, And responsibility is with Hamas. This is terrorism. And Israel has the right, must have the right to defend herself. And I think it's very important that we're clear about responsibility. Responsibility is with Hamas. That was a clear question. Would you call for restraint? Obviously, the attacks were horrific by Hamas on civilians, but would you call for restraint from Israel? Starmer's answer was less clear, but the implication was this. No, he wouldn't. Nick Robinson went on to press Starmer as to whether that was really the case. The reason I asked you about restraint and whether you would urge it on Israel is that the EU's foreign policy chief, Joseph Burrell, said yesterday, some decisions are contrary to international law. Some actions, like cutting electricity and food for civilians in Gaza, are, he said, against international law. Even a Conservative former foreign secretary, William Hague, warned Israel of a trap set from Hamas, a trap of provoking uncontrolled rage in the Middle East. Well, I think we have to be clear, we're several days into this appalling situation It is an ongoing situation. Israel does have the right to defend herself and there's an ongoing hostage situation. Responsibility lies in one place and that's with Hamas. That is such a dangerous answer and a cowardly answer as well because I think this is all about domestic political positioning. I don't think this is about what he actually believes. I mean, it might be the case that he doesn't give a damn whether or not Gaza is razed to the ground or people are starved of water and food and electricity. Maybe that's the case. Maybe he's a bit of a sociopath or a psychopath, right? I think to me, it seems more like this is about domestic positioning. He's so terrified that someone might say, oh, you're soft on Hamas, that he is willing to sacrifice two million people in Gaza. Now, obviously, he doesn't have a control of you know, whether they live or die, but it, it, he has some influence and he is using it for all the wrong ends. And what was sickening about that? So one, he's asked, it's not, it's not a difficult question. Would you call for restraint from Israel? Would you call for Israel no, heavily armed nuclear power to follow international law. No, no, I'm going to change the subject, right? And the thing I find actually most worrying is him constantly saying the responsibility lies in one place and that's with Hamas. Now, when it came to those original attacks by Hamas, right, I think obviously the responsibility is shared. Haaretz agrees, you know, the liberal Israeli newspaper. Obviously, Hamas didn't need to go and massacre shed loads of civilians at a music festival. They didn't need to massacre whole families at kibbutz. But the fact that they were mounting armed resistance in the first place, that has a lot to do with the fact that Israel has been occupying Palestine, right? That, that has a lot to do with the fact that they're an occupied people. So obviously responsibility is shared for the horrors which emerged. As I said, it's not an extreme view. Haaretz, newspaper in, in, in Israel, completely agrees. And I think when it comes to Israel's actions now, the idea that Anything they do, the responsibility is Hamas's, not only is it wrong, it's incredibly dangerous. Imagine you've got this, this, this nuclear power, as I say, is lining up 300,000 reserve troops. It's, it, it's bombing an area with the, the highest tech sort of drones and military equipment in the world. And you're saying, well, by the way, anything you do, I'm going to blame on those guys. What is that saying? That's the opposite of restraint. That's saying there is no responsibility whatsoever to show restraint because anything they do, I'm going to blame Hamas for anyway. That's, that's so, so horrifically irresponsible. 
Now, other interviews given by Starmer were even worse. It is possible. On LBC, Keir Starmer was asked specifically about his stance on the blockade of food, water and electricity getting into Gaza, which means two million people are already living without power. I'm very clear. Israel must have that, does have that right to defend herself. Um, and Hamas bears responsibility. A siege is appropriate? Cutting off power, cutting off water? Well, I think that Israel does have that right. It is an ongoing situation. Um, obviously, everything should be done within international law. Everything should be done within international law, yet Israel does have the right to cut off food, water and electricity to two million people. Now, that makes zero sense. Collective punishment is against international law. And cutting off food, water and electricity to two million people is collective punishment. And it doesn't serve any military end, right? What military end does it serve to cut off the water supply to two million people? To the Israelis, does Keir Starmer think that Hamas fighters will die of first quicker than civilians and then they'll switch it back on? Oh, we, we've turned off the water, but all the Hamas fighters have, have died of first. Let's switch it back on so the civilians stay alive. It doesn't make any sense. This guy was a human rights lawyer. I remember when he was positioning himself as the next leader of the Labour Party, he was saying, I, I care deeply about human rights. I've fought my whole life for human rights. Now he's saying, oh, by the way, yeah, turning off water for two million people, meh, you know, this is a developing situation. What can I say? So Starmer has no regard for human rights, for the legal requirements of a government at war. But could he at least muster some, some empathy, some sympathy for the civilians of Gaza, half of whom, of course, are children? What about those that are literally living under siege at the moment in Gaza? No water, no electricity, no power. A word for them? No, nobody wants to see that situation. But we have to be clear where responsibility is. Responsibility with Hamas. This has been a shocking uh, assault. Um, and, as I say, cold-blooded murder. Um, unjustified, unjustifiable. And um, I think it's very important that the world stands up and is clear about that and stands with Israel. That question was quite explicit. Do, do you have anything to say about the plight of people in, in Gaza, right? You don't, even, you, you don't even have to say which side are you on, who's right, who's wrong. Just do you have any sympathy for the people who's, whose houses are being leveled to the ground? Right. He could have said, yes, yes, I, 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 have so, I, I, can't, I have so much sympathy for them. Unfortunately, you know, Hamas means that they have been put in this terrible situation. He just says, nobody wants to see that situation. Nobody wants to see that situation. Moving on. That's all he could say. Again, before essentially saying he unconditionally sides of Israel. He doesn't want to talk about it. He said, why are you asking me about the Gazans? This is irritating. This isn't part of my PR strategy. I'm not the guy who's supposed to talk about the Gazans. I'm the guy who's supposed to talk about Israel. So I don't, I don't care if they can't drink. I don't care if they haven't got food. I don't care if they haven't got power. I'm Keir Starmer. I want to win the next general election. I want to show I'm not Jeremy Corbyn. So screw the Gazans. I mean, I, I feel like I'm, I'm speaking in a flippant way, but I, I actually don't think what I'm saying is really any different at all to what Keir Starmer has been saying all morning, doing a media round when you've got a nuclear power on, on the brink of committing something which seems to be akin to genocide, right? It, it hasn't happened yet. It's, it, Israel is not committing genocide right now, but their language, their, their aims, their intentions... I am very, very worried about what is going to happen next. And what has already happened is that 1,100 Palestinians have been killed, over 250 of them children. And Keir Starmer can't even say, yes, of course, the humanitarian crisis in Gaza is incredibly significant. He can just say, oh, yeah, no one wants to see that. Moving on. Ash, I am quite appalled, actually, by, by Keir Starmer's approach to all of this. You're, you're totally right to be appalled, Michael. I mean, imagine for one second if 
you were doing something on the BBC or Sky News and you were asked about your thoughts about the horrific attacks on the weekend. And what you said is, no one wants to see that situation, but unfortunately, that's what you get for decades of illegal occupation. Can you imagine what the response might be from the person interviewing you, from the wider political media, perhaps from politicians? You would be labelled a monster, right? You would be totally criticised by people who very much see themselves as standing up in the tradition of liberal human rights. And rightly so. One of the things that we've consistently discussed on this show is that I don't think that contextualizing what happened is the same thing as being callous or hard-hearted towards the suffering of civilians. And that's one of the things that I think we've really tried to do on this show is to express solidarity and horror at the plight of those many, many, many Israeli civilians over the weekend, but say, here is a context, and that's the thing which which made this violence all but inevitable. However, on the other side, people feel no such desire. So you end up in a position where there is an elite consensus, an elite consensus from the right wing, from the centre-left, and across the media as well, that any acknowledgement of Palestinian humanity is tantamount to an endorsement of Hamas. Now, that is part of the critical intellectual foundation for something like a genocide to take place. When you say this entire demographic of people is inherently criminal, is inherently associated with terrorism. And that refusal to acknowledge the humanity of Palestinians on the part of Keir Starmer is, I think, part of an enabling framework that may contribute to a genocide. And and I'm not saying that to be alarmist. I'm saying that because I think that that's really going to happen. Because what that shocking media display shows us is that there is a tacit agreement between politicians and the media that the lives of Palestinian civilians are not worth very much. Not worth very much. So you can be intensely cavalier about collective punishment because let's be very clear, cutting off medicine, food, water and fuel is going to kill people in addition to of course the bombardment from the skies those people will be civilians uh, many of them will be children and Keir Starmer is allowed to get away with a total non-answer saying yes I'm in favor of war crimes but only if they're within international law right that's effectively what's being said and it is as you pointed out a total nonsense you can get away with that kind of thing because Palestinian lives have been so systematically devalued in western media and we've got a bit of an update on this story so Taj Ali works for Tribune um, he tweeted this earlier. I'm told Keir Starmer's team put pressure on a journalist to change a headline on a story where he was reported to have said it was acceptable for Israel to withhold power and water from citizens in Gaza. 
the leader of the Labour Party has been criticised for the remarks. He goes on, overheard conversation on the train, I assume he's on the way back from Labour Party conference. And then a quote, Keir's team say he meant it within the context of what's legal under international law. His team are getting jumpy about the headline and people thinking he wants to starve kids. So if we could change that headline, that would be great. That might have been referring to this tweet from Henry Riley, who works for LBC. Um, it went on to be deleted. It said this, Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer is live on LBC. He tells Nick Ferrari, Israel does have the right to defend itself and Hamas bears that responsibility. He also says Israel has the right to withhold power and water. Now, I assume, you know, that did get a lot of traction. I saw that tweet this morning. I found it very disgusting. Labour saying, no, but he also qualified it and said, it's, it's uh, only if it's within international law. He actually didn't say it only if, he, he said, yes, it's acceptable. Of course, Israel should follow international law. Uh, which one of those statements should we take seriously? The clip obviously remains up. We've, the clip is basically what we've just shown you, but that t that, that tweet um, was was deleted. Let's go to a politician who did show some humanity towards Palestinians. It is possible, speaking to Al Jazeera, this was Scottish First Minister Hamza Youssef. He actually, in fact, has parents-in-law in Gaza. I'll give you my own family's example. Um, yesterday morning, my mother-in-law and father-in-law were told that the Rafa border may well be open for them. And that is, of course, the border controlled by Egypt, that they may be able to get out if they made their way to the Rafa border right then and there. So they quickly packed a bag. They were saying their goodbyes. Uh, they're about a 30-minute car drive away. They were about to leave to get in the car when they were told the news that Rafa had been bombed and that the crossing was closed indefinitely. That, that must have been very be terrifying for you, the thought that they could have been in a spot that actually got bombed in an Israeli airstrike. Absolutely. Absolutely terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. And, and that's the point. Either they stay in their house in Derbala, in, in Gaza, and there's a chance that they will not survive, or they make a journey to a border that is sometimes open, sometimes closed, and they may not make it alive to that journey. And I think this is my, my point, that I, as the First Minister of Scotland and the Scottish Government, completely understand why Israel wants to protect itself from terror. I understand that. But the price cannot be the collective punishment of 2 million people, over 2 million people in Gaza, the majority of whom are children, and the overwhelming majority of whom and, and on nothing that, to do with Hamas. Obviously, that was a really brave um, intervention. I think it also shows, you know, people sort of say, you know, representation politics, where you sort of celebrate the fact that someone from an ethnic minority is is in a high government position. You know, it's not that important. What matters is their politics. I think the fact that we we have um, a, a first minister in Scotland whose parents-in-law are in Gaza, right, that, that, that's quite a recent development that that would have been the case, right? And I think that is very important. And that seems to be one of the reasons he's speaking so powerfully about that. Keir Starmer, in all of his interviews this morning, mentions... Um, that his wife is, is Jewish. And that's why he feels, you know, so much solidarity towards, or one of the reasons he feels so much solidarity towards towards Israel and its right to defend itself. I think the difference, though, between Hamza Yusuf and Keir Starmer is Hamza Yusuf, is, he, he's saying, I can see why Israelis want security, but let's not do collective punishment of Gaza. Keir Starmer is just saying, Israel has a right to defend herself. I have no interest whatsoever in talking about Gazans. Do you need someone to be a member of your family to care? Right, it's I, I find it very, very despicable. Now, I should say, you know, Starmer's wife's not Israeli, but I'm only bringing this up because it was brought up many times in the interviews this morning. And there is a comparison because Hamza Youssef has 
these family members in, in Gaza. And I think Hamza Yusuf has shown just an amount of compassion and professionalism, actually, because I, I really think what Keir Starmer is doing is, is just an abdication of duty. And Hamza Yusuf seems to have risen to the moment and Keir Starmer absolutely, absolutely has not. We're going to keep going with one more story um, on a similar line. Given the appalling images coming out of southern Israel, it's understandable and wholly justified to be outraged at the actions of many Hamas militants. However, that should not be a reason to blind ourselves to the suffering of Palestinians who have lived under occupation for decades and who in Gaza are now being starved and bombed. Yet that's not everyone's position. It seems simple, doesn't it? It seems simple, but it's not everyone's position. Owen Jones was on a Sky News panel with Labour MP Margaret Hodge at Labour Party conference. Now, we join the interview here after Hodge spent around three minutes uninterrupted speaking about an attack on a kibbutz by Hamas, and she had visited um, that kibbutz earlier in the year. Thank you for... I know it must be really difficult after you've been there, you've met some of the people who are living there, and so thank you for sharing, you know, your experiences of it. It does bring it to life, what some of those horrors are that we've seen. Do you share that fear that things are going to get worse before they get better? Yes, of course. And obviously, firstly, it's so important to share the disgust and horror um, at what happened. I was at a rave on Saturday with my friend who's an Israeli citizen, and I was with him as he took a call from his family. His niece escaped that rave. Uh, two of her friends um, were kidnapped and are now being held hostage uh, by, by Hamas. There's no cause on earth which justifies the slaughter of innocent civilians and, you know, the horror and disgust uh, you know, is raw with so many people and the anguish of what those left behind are going for is 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 indescribable. Um, obviously, my concern about what happens next is partly informed by what's happened before. Um, when we talk about how Israel responds, um, already the Israeli government, which is a far-right government, have made clear that they will institute a policy of collective punishment the defence minister said, I've ordered a complete siege in the Gaza Strip. There will be no electricity, no food, no fuel. Everything is closed. We are fighting human animals and we act accordingly. That, that is the language of war crimes. It is illegal under international law uh, to impose collective punishment on a people. Um, 80%, I mean, I, I, can I, I'd, let you, I'd let you speak. So you're you're going to respond. 80% of those who live in Gaza, which is an open-air prison, um, depend on humanitarian aid. But you're 50, not acknowledging, Owen. You're not acknowledging, Owen. Margaret, I've let you, no, I've let no, you speak at using, length. I tell you what I can't stand, mm. is that you're using the horrors that we've no. experienced in the last right. three days to no. bang the drum about an issue no. that you've been banging no. the drum on forever. No, I'm not. And what I think Margaret, you should really Margaret. think about is how you, how you know, the, the, the people of Israel who have now been there for, you know, have nowhere else to go. Ma Margaret, they have nowhere else to go. Is, is it possible? Is it possible for me to respond? You could just see her body language there, right? Owen, you know, he, he started by saying, the, it, it wasn't a sort of Keir Starmer, oh yeah, we don't like to see it. You know, Keir Starmer when he's asked about the cars, oh, no one wants to see that. Owen was talking, you know, I, I think in, in, in a heartfelt manner about the horror that many Israeli civilians experienced on Saturday, right? And he condemned it. He's saying there is, there is no cause in the world which justifies the targeting of civilians. Very clear, right? Very clear. Then he says, we also need to think about the situation of Palestinians, you know, both the, the context they've been living under for decades, which is occupation and siege, and the threats that they are, you know, currently subject to, you know, in the, in the immediate term, which is bombing, um, which is a, a starvation, essentially. The moment he mentions Palestinians, Margaret Hodge is like, 
you know, ready to interrupt. Why? Why are you bringing up? Why are we talking about the Palestinians? Why, what, 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 this is a complete distraction. This is what aboutism. Well, it's not what aboutism. One, because there is no point in talking about that that attack by by Hamas without talking about the context of occupation. Does that justify it? No. Would it have happened if Israel wasn't occupying Gaza, occupying Palestine? No. Right. So so it's clearly relevant. Right. Clearly relevant. Also, the reason it's essential to be talking about Palestinians right now is because there is a nuclear power that is threatening to you know, bomb the place to smithereens, even though there are too many people there. Right. It, 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 it is by no measure irrelevant to talk about Palestinians in this situation. Yet Margaret Hodge can only see this through the lens of you are banging a drum about a campaign you've always cared about, like, as if Palestinian lives is just a question of people wanting to win a debate on a panel discussion, right? Oh, you're always going on about the Palestinians. Why can't you forget about them? Well, the, the, the reason he's not going to forget about them is, is one, because they have been subject to the longest running occupation on, on earth, right? Apartheid, horrific discrimination. Two, this is probably the most dangerous time for Palestinians in living memory. And she said, oh, why are you talking about that? Why are you talking about that hobby horse? You're using a tragedy to talk about something completely irrelevant. No. One, that tragedy was born out of a longer-term tragedy, which is occupation. And two, that tragedy is now being used to inflict one which is just as big and probably going to be bigger. You know, I, I, I guarantee the death toll in, in Palestine is going to be bigger than the death toll was in Israel. That, that's not to downplay what happened in Israel. It's just a fact, right? So the idea that the moment someone mentions Palestinians, you go, <gasps> and then you sort of say, why is he talking about this? I, I found it very, very worrying, actually. I think, I, I think that is a sign that someone has dehumanized Palestinians. If the moment they said this, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm just irritated and angry that you've mentioned the Palestinians. Let's go back to the debate and see what happens next. Right now, Palestinian children, whose life is as sacred as a child in Israel, are being slaughtered. They are dying, okay? Now, 50% of the... Well, can just, please just, let me finish. I'll, please. I'll let, you, I'll, I'll let you come in. 50% of the population of the Gaza Strip are children. And those children are being bombed by a government which has said that we are fighting human animals and we act accordingly. Benjamin Netanyahu demanded the civilians of Gaza Strip leave. You cannot leave the Gaza Strip. It is under blockade by air, sea, and land. Now, 96%, okay. please let me finish. Yeah, I will, but- 96%, because Margaret spoke at length, 96% of those who have died in the last 15 years are Palestinians. And we cannot talk about what's happened because, you know, when I spoke to my Israeli friend who took that call, for him, what he wants is this to never happen again. And that context for him was so important okay. because, unless there is a lasting peace, which does mean ending the occupation okay. and a policy of apartheid okay. and ending the murder of Palestinian civilians, then this will okay. never end. Margaret. Well, all I would say is that Owen is completely and utterly ignoring what has happened over the last few days. I just uh, you, you have ignored about all, Owen, just wait, all, just wait. All you've talked about, Owen, is your obsession, the obsession with so many people um, around... Uh, your, I, uh, the, pal the issue around Palestine. It's been an obsession forever. And you should just think, just think at the moment, if you were an Israeli sitting there, if you'd had family, I mean, here I am, I'm sitting here and the people I visited, probably, I don't know how many of them are still alive. Are you saying they have no right to defend themselves? Are you saying they have no right to be? All you have argued is how, a I've, I've never supported the Netanyahu government. No. I've always been critical of that. I'm, but at this moment in time, at this moment in time, at this moment in time, this is the Ma most Margaret, horrific Margaret, 
this is the most horrific occasion Margaret, of, 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 uh, and you should, Margaret, you condemn it. Do you even I, condemn I, I it? I just opened in the strongest possible terms condemning the atrocities But you don't think they have the Hamas. right... I don't believe a military solution... Which you don't is, think they have a right to defend their state uh, the of military Israel? Solution, the military solutions that have been pursued against the Gaza Strip have led to huge bloodshed... You don't bloodshed think they have the right to defend themselves? I think a military attack on Gaza will lead to countless dead Israeli soldiers so, and huge numbers so of civilians. So they should allow the hostages what is to die? So they should allow the hostages to die. Now, if you want the hostages back alive... Now, this is a difficult situation. I'm not saying this is easy, right? This is, this is, I mean, for one, for the people who are being held hostage, I'm sure it's terrifying and awful and they're, you know, fearing for their lives. And, you know, it, it, some of the messages that have come out from Hamas suggest that some of them are going to be killed, right? So it's a horrific situation. But to say, what do you want them to do? Just let the hostages die. Now, if, if Israel's number one priority was for the hostages to live, they would strike a deal with Hamas, right? They would strike a deal with Hamas. But Margaret Hodge seems to think that war is the way to get those hostages back. I'm not, I'm not really sure how that works. Two, do you condemn them? Do you condemn them? Now, anyone listening to what Owen Jones would have said would have heard that he did condemn them, right? It, it, for about a minute, he was talking about how this was a horrific action and how no cause on earth would justify the targeting of civilians. Right? That, that, that's a condemnation. But the fact that he then talked about Palestinians made Margaret Hodge assume he can't, he can't have condemned them if he's then talking about Palestinians. She, every sentence for her seems to have to be, I condemn Hamas, I condemn Hamas, I condemn Hamas. And if you say anything else... You, you're beyond the pale. You've, you, you've moved from the script, from the script that we all have to be talking about at the moment, which is to just say, Israel has a right to defend itself. Hamas, terrible. Hamas, responsible. Israel, good. Israel, uh, gendered as a woman by Keir Starmer. Ash, what did you make of that, uh, that debate? It didn't seem like an easy situation to be in. No, I mean, I think, I think it wasn't an easy situation to be in because, like I said, the elite consensus at the moment is that Palestinian lives are worth less than Israeli lives. And I think that that absolutely poured out of Margaret Hodge in terms of both what she was saying and her body language and her tone of voice. I mean, let's reverse the tables for a second. And let's say that my response to somebody pointing out the horrors of the weekend's attacks and the taking of Israeli civilian hostages by saying, well, don't the Palestinians have the right to defend themselves? You know, you're just, you're wanging on about this issue, which is Israelis and you're obsessed with Israelis. Don't the Palestinians have the right to defend themselves? What do you want to do? Roll over. Again, the reception to that in the media would be totally different. I think that it's fair to say that the host of this conversation, Sophie Ridge, would step in and it would be decried as callous and horrific and an endorsement of war crimes. Now, when that script is flipped and we see it playing out the way that it did between Owen Jones and Margaret Hodge, it's somehow acceptable to completely talk over, interrupt and lose interest in accounts of war crimes being done against Palestinians, the horrific conditions that they're enduring now and have endured for decades by talking about the suffering of Israelis. Now, what that does is that it, it presents regard for civilian life as a competition where one group has to win. Like that's that's exactly what's going on. 
And I think that it was a poorly chaired discussion. Um, of, of, of course, of course, we all have, I think, just a very instinctive human empathy for not just the civilians who are suffering in Israel, but for the people who have got friends and for family and who are worried sick about the well-being of their loved ones. And Palestinians have friends and family too. You know, Palestinians have loved ones who are sick with worry, who are terrified about what happens when the electricity runs out in Gaza and communications blackout. That's a human experience that Margaret Hodge is saying as a way to bulldoze over the humanity of Palestinians, which is being referred to by Owen Jones, but that's actually a shared humanity if you recognize it. But I think that you're right, the body language and the tone of voice is just, it suggests a real dehumanization of Palestinians and a willingness to treat Palestinians and Hamas as interchangeable. Ash, it's been a longer show than usual. We've covered a lot of ground. Thank you so much for for joining me tonight. Thank you. I mean, we're going to be covering this story a lot um, in the coming week, if not weeks. And I suppose I'm very thankful to our audience for staying with us through it. It's important that they hear the truth. It's important that they hear from the voices of Palestinians, which we try and get on as often as we can. And we're not going to we're not going to go along with the misinformation campaign that the rest of the media is very happy to be complicit in. I also think we should say, you know, the left can do self-reflection too, right? I, I, in in the way that I think people are now dehumanizing Palestinians, I think there were some people on the left um, who were dehumanizing sort of Israeli civilians. And I think, you know, my initial reaction was seeing, you know, the Palestinians are rising up. This is legitimate, like, you know, all, 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 all resistance against occupation is, is legitimate. Took me a while to realize, okay, this is slightly different. And, and, and I think that there has been many people on the left sort of considering, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe we didn't sort of engage our empathy quick enough when it came to the, the horrific attack on, on, on Israeli civilians at a music festival, then in kibbutz, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we seem to have swung to completely the other end of the spectrum where and this isn't just some people on Twitter, this is the, the entire political and media establishment is saying to even dare to have sympathy with Palestinians is an endorsement of terrorism. And, it, and, and this is, you know, it, it's seen as normal. And I don't see any self-reflection from, from the mainstream media on this. If anything, I see people, I, I see all the pressure going in the other direction. Everyone's saying, you're not being biased enough. Everyone looking at the BBC, you're not, you, you need to be more biased. Right? Why aren't you taking a side? This is a civilized world versus savages, and you need to say as such. Very, very dangerous place we are in right now. Um, so, yes, thank you for watching. Um, do keep tuning in over the coming days and weeks. Um, the show, of course, will be back tomorrow. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support. <laughs>